Pretty camp blood, ain't ya? Thank you for joining us at Now Playing for our Friday the 13th Retrospective. With all the excitement of the Michael Bay remake of Friday the 13th coming out on Friday, February 13th, we here at Now Playing will be looking back at all of the installments in the Friday the 13th movie franchise, from Crystal Lake to New York to Deep Space. You'll never come back again. It's got a death curse. Just a quick warning up front, these are R-rated movies that barely made it past the MPAA, and our discussions of the movies are just as R-rated. And also, these reviews will contain major spoilers. Listener discretion is advised. Today we're discussing Friday the 13th Part 2, released in 1981, and with me again are, well again, introduce yourselves please. Stuart from L.A. Arnie from my basement. (laughs) And Brock, co-host of Now Playing. We are here to discuss Friday the 13th Part 2, which came out a year later after the first Friday the 13th was released, obviously in response to the gigantic amount of money the first one made. And right off the bat, we get something a little bit the same and a little bit different. So I guess to start, we should probably go around real quick about our first impressions of Friday the 13th Part 2. You know, off the top of your head, what do you think of the movie overall in a general sense? You know, I'm not being a particularly big fan of Friday the 13th, I've, I found that the first one was decent for that kind of thing. This one I felt held on to the quality. Usually with a quickie sequel, you imagine it just being boilerplate, and, and in, indeed it is. But what it fixes about the original is pretty important, and that is that it has a higher budget, uh, the the lighting scheme, a decent rain machine. You'll be surprised how far you can go when you can actually see the characters and they're better looking and giving slightly better performances. It's not a, a reinvention of the wheel, but it is our introduction to Jason as a killer, and I thought that it was as good or as bad as the original. You know, when you mentioned that this movie was fast-tracked to come out in 1981, I can't help but draw a parallel with the current generation of horror movies with Saw. Because the first Saw was made on virtually no budget. It was released around Halloween. Nobody expected it to do what it did, which is make a buttload of money. And then immediately they go, oh my god, we need to do this next year and make more money and strike while the iron's hot. Well, that was the Friday the 13th back then. They did one a year for four years, and that's what they're doing with Saw now. They just only Saw is up to its sixth year. So Saw, I guess, has more staying power or slaying power, if you prefer. But as for <laughs> Friday the 13th Part 2, you know, my, my general thoughts are there's a lot of inconsistencies between Part 1 and Part 2, and the continuity geek in me kind of goes, what? And the second thing is, it's not much of a movie, because you're saddled with a 15-minute prologue, which feels like you know, a direct sequel to the last movie that takes place two months after the first movie. Then, after an interminable credit sequence, we're fast-forwarding five years, and we're back on the same lake but a different camp, and introduced to a whole new bunch of people, and then it's almost like the first movie retold, only it's shorter, so there's less of that, as we discussed when discussing part one, the first half an hour was horrible in the last one, now we're only given 15 minutes before the action kicks in. But it's it's a lot of the same. The killer
killings are shots of feet and shots of hands again. And while you know who the killer is this time, it's told at the very beginning, the killer is Jason, who supposedly drowned and is now living in the woods, not having drowned, and with the intelligence of... I guess an eight-year-old who watched his mother die on the beach, and now he's like a crazy mountain man with some deformities out there. And in it's a different killer, but it's kind of the same movie, but like Stuart said, with more budget and a little higher quality of filmmaking. I feel like the most important creative decision of the whole series, and maybe of the whole slasher genre, happens in Friday the 13th Part 2. And it is this. We have established Alice. As a character, she is the sole survivor of the original film. We have, when we finally get through the prologue, which is excessive, she is living in what she has referenced in the first movie as her Californian home. And there we see shades of her personality. She's still drawing. She's still the same person. We could have a whole movie based on her now being stalked in a new environment. She is the star of Friday the 13th. It could be her at a sorority. It could be her at a mall. It could be her at the beach town. On Friday the 13th again, that you could use that diehard line. How can the same thing happen to the same girl twice? Exactly. Every Friday the 13th, she knows she's got to hoof it. Because wherever (laughs) she is, some zombie is going to come nail her. But they don't make that choice. They make the choice that there is no star in Friday the 13th other than the killer. Whoever it is, and, and even if they're innocent and pure and get away one time, they'll either be forgotten about or they eventually, as in the case of this introductory scene, will be killed. And then kind of another psycho moment. Well, part of the reason that choice was made, they invited Alice back to star in Friday the 13th Part 2, and she declined because after Friday the 13th Part 1, she had a real stalker come after her, and she oh, weird. didn't want that. Yeah, I was going to bring that up if, if Arnie didn't. Uh, it actually did happen to her in real life. Wow. I need to get My first impressions of this movie, Friday the 13th Part 2, I actually was pleasantly surprised with how good it was structured. I felt that the screenplay is surprisingly stronger, and I didn't expect that at all, and I'll get into detail later about what I mean, but I thought the screenplay was actually stronger than you would think it would be for a sequel, and I loved, loved, loved that long opening with Alice getting killed. I thought it was brilliant. So overall, I enjoyed the first one more because of that murder mystery kind of thing. And this one, once the killings start happening, it kind of gets like, you know, repetitive. But there are moments in this movie that I really was like, really, they went there? Huh. And wow, look, there you go. So I immediately thought, oh, this is going to be like a cheap sequel. No big deal. It actually has more merits than I thought it was going to. So it actually surprised me in a lot of different ways. Now, Stuart was mentioning that this girl, yeah, she referenced in the first movie, Living in California. Jason, as we see at the end of this movie, is a deformed mountain man with long hair. Did, did he catch a plane? Was it Greyhound? How the hell did Jason track her down? I, I'm trying to picture Jason going into, remember in the before we had the Google, you, if you wanted to look up an international thing, you had to go to the library where they had those walls of phone phone books, every phone book in the country. How did he find Alice? I don't know, but it was a hell of a bus ride. And I, as someone that has commuted <laughs> on the bus, it's not hard to believe that a deformed mountain man with a machete <laughs> could be seated next to you. I think I actually sat by Freddy a couple times. Well, we're talking about the opening sequence. After watching the opening sequence, the first thing I noticed about the movie was a different director was on it. Like I actually noticed the guy's name was different. 
And so after watching the first sequence and then watching about the first 20 minutes, I said to myself, maybe the opening sequence was supposed to be the ending of the first movie. Because if, as I mentioned in the last episode, we talked about Friday the 13th in the last series episode. I love the long shots. And in this opening sequence with Alice, there was like back-to-back long shots of like two minutes of her just doing her own thing in her house. And then she gets in the shower, and then there's a cut, and then they, she... She makes she, more she, coffee. Shower. Uh, yes. <laughs> she comes out of the shower with a robe on. It, it's really long, long shots, really adding the tension. They get the cheap scare of the cat coming through the window, and then she gets it. And I thought that was really, really well done, and it really felt like it was the first movie again. And so when they started going on the actual killings in this movie, although they had the same kind of POV shots and some of the same kind of stuff with the hands, as you mentioned... It really felt like a completely different director was in there. So I actually looked up after watching the movie whether or not that was the original ending or that ending was filmed originally and they, and they cut it out for that lake jump. And it wasn't true. They brought her back, as Arnie mentioned, and, and that's why she wasn't. And she agreed to do this one scene so she wouldn't have to be uh, having this thing over her head the whole time. But I mean, congratulations. Amazing. We have no idea who you are, Alice. Yes, and amazingly so, I was really impressed by that first opening scene, and it, had, it really gave me high hopes for the rest of the movie. Now, you say it's a totally different director, and it is, but it's the person who associate produced the first movie. So it was a continuation of sorts, because I don't know why Sean Cunningham didn't return, but Sean Cunningham is a fairly well-known name in horror and just didn't come back for the sequels, much like Spielberg didn't return for Jaws 2. But it was kept in the family, so to speak, and Minor went on to direct parts 2 and 3, at least. But I felt the style of the movie was different so much, and maybe it's because... Because he said, I have more, I have double the budget now, and I have, as Stewart points out, the, the lighting and the, and the rain machine stuff. Uh, maybe he felt, I have all this extra stuff. We can do stuff we couldn't do the first time. And part of what made the first movie so good was how clever they had to be with the kills, with the misdirections, that sort of thing. So when you have the money, I guess you could say money corrupts because the same sort of tension wasn't there. Fortunately for me, the screenplay actually picked up some of that slack. But for the actual murders and the actual kills, it wasn't as interesting or clever. And, of course, we have to go back to the point that we know who the killer is, which definitely just changes the whole dynamic. It's more, I felt, the second one was more of a story of Jason. He's the star. We now have established Alice is not the star. The star right. is this deformed guy, and why is he, and who is he? And it felt like his awkward teen years to me. It was like he kept <laughs> trying on things. He's like, maybe I'll wear a bag on my head. It's kind of the equivalent of I'm going to pierce my nose and, and dye my <laughs> hair blue, you know, the rebellious teen. I don't know who I am yet. I don't know what my weapon of choice is. And he's still kind of living in his mom's shadow. If you'll notice, all of his killings were not something that she wouldn't have done. They're all throat slashings. And impalings. I mean, it's exactly right. his mom's mode of killing. Well, what they hypothesized in this movie is Jason watched his mother kill all those people in part one. And so he picked up from there. You said it's his awkward teen years. How old is Jason in this movie? I mean, are we supposed to think that Jason aged from age eight? And if so, what jumped out of the lake? Or did he start aging again at part one? And that would put him at, you know, a, a very bulky 13. I'm very confused about the... So, genesis of Jason. He died in the 50s, right? right. 1957 or something. And the first movie was released in 1980, but maybe it actually took place in the mid-70s because this movie is clearly made in the early 80s. So 
maybe what happened was he was a kid at the end of the first movie. He seemed like a teenager at the end of the first movie, maybe like 13 or 14 to me, maybe 12 when he jumped out of the lake. And then five years later, he's like this. He's he's a full grown man. The guy is gigantic. He's like broad, broad shoulders and all that kind of thing. Maybe they're implying that he aged slowly under the lake, maybe in the lake for, for all those years. His growth was retarded. And so he was like one fourth the size he should have been. Once he came out of the lake, he started growing at natural rate. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense why in five years he would go from shrunken tot to someone that never would have drowned in a lake to begin with because he's, <laughs> he's taller than it is deep. But if, if I can interject to the timeline, Brock said that he wondered if the first movie was the mid 70s and then this movie, the 80s. I definitely agree. The fashion and the people were totally different. The last movie w- screamed 70s so badly. Nobody cursed. Everybody was wearing flannel and ugly plaid. But if you follow the future movies, which we'll talk about, Friday the 13th Part 2 takes place on Friday the 13th. Part 3 takes place the very next day on Saturday the 14th. And Part 4, which came out in 1984, picks up immediately after 3. So in my mind, I say that the first movie was like 79. And then the other three take place in 84, all back to back to back. And thus the difference. That's that's my I own personal see, retcon. Yeah, it's it'll be it'll be interesting to see how this remake fixes these problems. It's obviously just logistical problems that they, you know, were not thinking of when they made the first movie. The first movie did not have in the grand scheme of things. Unlike when I feel like movies get made today, they're thinking about, and in the fifth movie we'll do this and that. They didn't. <laughs> they didn't have a plan. There was no master plan about where they were going to go and who was going to be the killer and what it was going to be. That's pretty clear here. It's just sort of inconsistent. And if you're a stickler for details, you're probably going to have major headaches. Well, in our last roundtable about Friday the 13th, we discussed how Friday the 13th Part 1 really took a lot of psycho. Would this movie have been as effective if it took some of the omen and we had a 13-year-old kid doing all the slaying? Hmm. I I actually think that might have been effective. Uh, It certainly would have made it more um, plausible that he's growing or changing because he eventually does get played by some six-foot-five man. That never really makes any sense to anyone. But I think actually, if if we're jumping ahead, I think Part 9 tries to actually tie all these loose threads together into a bow, and, and there's some kind of supernatural mythology that's brought in. We can wait for that movie and, and, and see if any of it makes sense. But for right now, it definitely is not explained. And is Jason at this point a zombie? Because I took this movie. If you just look at it at this movie, don't look at any of the sequels. I took this one because he's a fully grown man to be that perhaps he didn't actually drown and he just grew up in the woods. And so if he was supposedly drowned in 57, that would put him in his early 30s. And he was just this crazy 30 year old, but very human mountain man or yes. man child. That makes the most sense to me. That that explanation certainly does make the most sense. Although you would think a frightened child who didn't drown in the lake would go search out for his mother. Especially when he's so close to mommy. She's right there. Yeah, and, and because psychologically speaking, he's so close to her. That's I was referring to the psychological, yes. Yeah, yes. So I, I think you're absolutely right. But now he had a big bulbous thing in the end of the first movie and he had it here again, you see, at the end on this left side of his head, kind of like an elephant man kind of bulge thing. 
So is he disabled or he just like, well, what is his deal in that sense? Because maybe that's why, maybe if we want to really explain, try to put justification to this, maybe that's why, uh, maybe he's not all there because he's, you know, a special kid. You know what I mean? He's definitely got some deformities going on and probably, you know, the other kids taunted him and that's why he drowned. Well, it's interesting you guys came to that conclusion because I always assumed he looked like that because he had decomposed in a lake for 30 years. And that that was actually the result of, you know, just the aging process. But who knows? In the flash. I've got to say it doesn't win uh, Mrs. Voorhees, Mother of the Year, to uh, have her (laughs) mentally challenged child swimming alone in a lake while she cooks (laughs) for the camp. The the actual flashback of the kid drowning in the lake in the first movie, I could have swore I saw a big bulge. I actually rewound it twice to see hmm. if it was there because at the end of the movie it was so there. And then this movie here, you see it again. So I thought the exact same thing about, well, why isn't he really being watched? But regardless wow. regardless of which, uh, you can go back and check it. Uh, I could be completely wrong and maybe I'm just projecting that on there. But I, I, I think it's there. But I digress. Now, you know, let's let's look at the bulk of this movie, which is the counselor camp. It's a camp for counselors, conveniently not putting any six or eight year olds in danger. No, it's a two week prep before the camp opens. Right. They have two yeah. weeks for training. It's counselors in training before the counts, before the camp opens. And I was surprised at the huge number of counselors there. I'm like, wow, Jason's going to do a lot of killing. And then they all go to town and live. It's a, it's a definitely a fake out. It was a surprise. I'm like, you know, when the one black person there is like, we all know that. It's like, oh, well, that's dead meat. And then they got the most annoying character ever, the geek. We're all like, well, yes, we're rooting for your quick demise here. They're survivors. Yeah, I could not believe he lived. They, they actually go to town and drink it up and have fun and, and don't pay for the, that, you know, behavior. Yeah, I was shocked to death because that guy, he goes on to be in other movies. I think he was in just one of the guys and a few other movies, that annoying ginger prankster guy. And how could he not die? How, I don't how did that happen? They drop a line. That annoying guy drops a line after uh, Paul and the blonde psychologist student girl leave the bar. He drops a line to the old man. Is there an after hours place? That was the best decision he ever made in his life. <laughs> I'm going to get drunker. Yeah. And not go back to the camp. So I guess the implied is when, when they get back in the morning hours, they find all their friends dead. That's how the police come, I guess. But they don't explain that either. But but there were so many other camp counselors with him because like 20 go to town. All those right. various girls with their yeah. tampons that they need to use. And, you know, <laughs> they, they are all there. If they'd all come back, maybe they could have overpowered Jason, the pro- the, the the thing Jason does is he separates his kills. Right. Yep. Well, I thought that was really interesting about the tampon thing. There was that horrible line about girls have to keep clean or the oh bears. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh what my was God. up with that? <laughs> I was repulsed. Uh, the the man, just, just catch the audience out with, the man, the head man, the, the Paul, I think his name yes, is. Yes, Paul. Is giving out advice <laughs> and tells the girls that if they don't douche, or, or, or keep clean that they will be, bring a bear mauling on themselves. <laughs> and this man lives. I'm like, oh, you know, you'd, if, this had, if Jason had been a girl, oh, you know he had been the first and only one to get it. It's like, oh, hell no. Now, we don't know for a fact that he lives. I wanted to talk about the ending a little later. But the end, there, we don't know what happened to Paul. 
the end tries to, if, if we're talking about the end, I think the end tries to recreate the did that really happen or was it a dream moment that was so effective in the first movie when exactly. Jason jumps out of the water and, and the Alice is on the boat. The only difference is is that we can buy that as the dream sequence, whereas this one just doesn't give us an ending at all. It's like suddenly Jason jumps through the wall. Well, he probably did jump through the wall. Uh, what happened between him jumping through the wall and her being put on a stretcher in an ambulance is too ambiguous for its own good. Yeah, uh, that was that was a train wreck of an ending. It, mm. w- it was hitting a brick wall and being like, well, we hit 90 minutes. We are done. That's a wrap. <laughs> It definitely was. Let, let's go to the after hours bar and uh, and be done with this kind of kind of thing. Because I wanted to know what the hell happened to Paul. We never know, and we never yeah. know what happens when the kids come back, and we never know anything. And I was thinking to myself, well, maybe they're being really clever, and those exact same cast members will come back next time for Friday the Thirteenth Part Three. Since I've never seen, th- it's like they lost a reel of film. Yeah, it's like yeah. what happened is the ending they had didn't work, so they cut it and used the quick scare thing, and thought, oh, they won't care, the audience won't care. Right. I I completely agree with you. I think maybe the the smoke machine didn't work or something, and they. Whatever. I did some more research and I could not find any records of scenes being cut or filmed that were not included, though. So, so well, that maybe they didn't get to film them. That that's possible too. They had a bigger budget. They blew it. They they shot their wad, and uh, before they knew it, they had to just make do with what they did rather than bring back all those characters. It's hard to know. But uh, for me, the best ending would have been if she had killed Jason and was standing there smiling triumphantly, and then the bear broke through the wall and killed her because she hadn't used a tampon. (laughs) (laughs) They missed a a real good opportunity there to, to... to close that loop. That, 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 girls, that's why you keep clean during your cycle. <laughs> and speaking, and just since we're on the subject of, of, of female emissions, all right, so in the climactic scene, she's, Jenny is hiding under the bed. She's been running around now. Her friends are murdered, and, and she's in a, a great deal of a panic, and a rat runs by her. And she's so scared by the rat that she puddles. She pees so bad that the puddle grips out from under the bed and Jason sees her and attacks her. This is scarier to you? Like you've been holding it all in and it's the rat that makes you lose it? That is some self-control. That was really some grossness, actually. That you know, I watched all the murders, thought nothing of it. She pisses herself, and I'm like, ew. Isn't what that the funny? Hell? That a puddle of piss. Is is more graphic than a man in a wheelchair getting impaled. I mean, but the thing is, I'm then thinking the entire time. First of all, is it even possible for a woman, assuming she's wearing panties and jeans, to puddle like that? Where and then second, she's running around the woods after that. That's gonna chafe. Yeah, and she wasn't wet either. I I tried to pay attention, but it was so darkly lit that I couldn't really tell if there was a spot on her pants or not. The most gross thing to me about the whole movie, even more than that stuff, was that she put on that ratty old sweater at the end. That when she put that sweater on, I was like, oh, that's gross. What do you think of that ending in that she gets inside Jason's head? Because it, it's really led up to because they sit there hypothesizing about the psychological makeup of Jason and they make the girl be a child psych major and say Jason has the mind of a child. Did that work for you guys that she's like, you've done a good job and mother's happy? Honestly, I, it did. And this goes back to what I said earlier, I referenced to, I was very surprised on the strength, and I use that loosely, of this screenplay in that Screenplay 101 here, 
They actually set up a whole bunch of stuff in the beginning, and they brought it up in the middle again to remind you of it, so it pays off at the end. And one of the times that this happened was the child psychology thing. So when it comes to the end, when she puts the sweater on, albeit gross, and she does you know, mind-screw Jason there, I thought it really was a good, solid payoff for what they set up earlier. Um, it would have been I a lo- more effective ending if they had just stopped there. You know, exactly. like, why couldn't that have been the end rather than have that lame fake out? I mean, that felt more cheap. And I think what, the way Jason figured it out was also cool that he's not just an idiot who's killing people. He actually has a brain in his head. And I thought that was really cool how the whole thing went to pot because he, she was ready going in for the kill and she, and she screwed it up. I also like earlier, there's a part in the movie where they put a chainsaw away in the closet. It was so obvious to let us know, the, us the audience know the chainsaw was, was there. I turned to my wife who was watching with me and said, now everybody, make sure you remember the chainsaw is in the closet. <laughs> so later on, when they had the chainsaw, she pulls it out and we know, okay, because if they just pull the chainsaw out of nowhere, you'd be like, what? And while I'm on the chainsaw really quick, she downs Jason with the chainsaw. All she had to do was cut off his leg or impale him with the chainsaw. End the movie! But no, she runs away scared without the chainsaw finishing the job. I think justifiable homicide. I think any cop in the world would give her that. But anyway, so to get back to Arnie's point, I think they set it up for us and they paid it off. And again, it wasn't great, great, great screenwriting, but it deserves the credit it should get because for a sequel, a horror made on the fly a year later after the success of a first one, it had more things going for it than I thought it was going to. Agreed on all points. It's, it was a way to tie it to the first movie. We're so distracted by the fact that, you know, we don't know, and neither did the filmmakers really know what are, what are Jason's limits, what are his powers. Zombie, survivor, retard, well, we, don't, we don't know any of it. And it, it was a way of bringing closure by having us remember the real killer from the first film, the mother character, and, and tying back to that. I thought it was effective. Should have stopped there. Uh, didn't yes. need the, that extra ending. But, you know, it's, I, I kind of agree with Brock. It's, it could have been a lot worse, you know, for a series that cranks out sequels with indifference. It could have been a lot worse. Uh, than, than what we got to have what is essentially a higher gloss remake. And hotter ki- Yeah, the characters were much hotter and, and also looser morals, whereas the first ones, really, even though they had sex, only two people who had sex in the last one were in a long-term relationship and yeah, they smoked a little weed, but it was the 70s, who didn't? <laughs> This movie, you get some looser morals. Everyone's looking to hook up with everyone else, and they're out drinking all night. So these were more kids I could relate to, sadly. But, (laughs) yeah, I also like that the kills were more regular than in the first movie. There wasn't that first half hour here. Jason does a couple of kills on the sly. He kills Crazy Ralph from the first movie. I loved seeing Crazy Ralph come back, by the way. I thought that was a wonderful thing, because he was one of the best parts of the first one, and you know, with the, it's a death curse. He's got that weird kind of faux accent and strange inflection. And so to see him bite it was good. Although I, I could have seen him coming back time and time again. But it just, it kept the deaths coming and they were varied enough. And the budget was better. The death effects were a little better and more realistic. I liked it quite a bit. 
I'm surprised, though, that they killed the kid in a wheelchair. I mean, they had the kid in the wheelchair there, and I'm like, oh, my God, they're not going to kill a kid in the wheelchair. And then once they killed the kid in the wheelchair with the machete, and he goes down the stairs, then once he died and they had that free shot, I guess, because I guess the, when he fell out of the chair, it didn't look good. Or maybe the knife fell out of his head or something. I don't know why. They just freeze-framed on him. But I said to myself, as he was falling back down on the stairs, oh, that's why they put him in a wheelchair. They just want to have a different kind of movement kind of kill. They don't care that they're killing a kid in a wheelchair. I thought it was just purely they had the idea of the shot of him falling down the stairs, and that's why they set him up in a wheelchair. Because there's really no reason for him to be in a wheelchair. I think what we're, what we're establishing here is Friday the 13th is not kind to those with mental and physical challenges. <laughs> I thought it was pretty ballsy, but you know what this is a result of? It's that we, in our 30s all, are so used to this PC culture where, oh, well, you can't do that to someone in a wheelchair because they're in a wheelchair. Back then, they didn't give a shit. They just killed the kid in the wheelchair just like any other kid. And it wasn't that really a better era when we weren't defined by our differences, but what we had in common, which is Jason would kill us all. I sent another term paper coming on, aren't you? <laughs> That's great. There was a scene, the kid in the wheelchair had the tomboy girl, and she's coming on to him like gangbusters. This guy's denser than toast. I can't believe he didn't figure that out. And she says to him, and I, I turned to my wife while I'm watching this, I said, she's going to ask him if everything works besides his legs. And sure enough, she did. And then she goes off the change into something more comfortable, and she changes from her cool black panties into these silky brown ones. Now, I don't know where this girl learned her Let stuff. Let me tell you what she did, because I, I thought the same thing. I'm like, ooh, black panties, hot. But, yeah, but black ones, what the hell? The black ones didn't match her brown bra, and women, you know, they'll sometimes wear bad underwear on the first date so that they're insured that they're not going to give it up. And so what happened was she was getting the matching bra and panty ensemble, which, you know, matters to women. Guys are just happy that there's a naked woman there. I did not pick up on that, although didn't she have a matching black bra? Isn't a black bra a staple to every woman's bra collection? Keep in mind, you know, may maybe she was just following the advice from the beginning of the movie and trying to keep clean. Maybe, you know, she <laughs> just had a little excitement down there and decided, oh, God, the bears! <laughs> <laughs> yes, don't you know that Brown will make the bear think that she is, is also a bear and will leave her alone? <laughs> Or that she pooped herself. Because yeah, we also yeah. know that people do that here in this movie. Yeah. Anyway, I also found, while we're on the topic of the kills, I thought it was really cool. One of my favorite kills of the whole movie was the twofer with the spear through the two kids. I thought that was awesome. He's efficient. Yeah, I thought it was very great. economical. Yeah, and, and I read up after the movie because I was reading up about the first opening scene, thinking about whether or not that was from uh, tagged in. And apparently there was more to that scene and they had to cut out the double impalement or they were going to they were going to get an X rating for it. Actually, this movie, more than any of the others, has a lot of cut death scene footage. And that is why some of it seemed so abrupt is this movie. They had the budget. They spent it on the gore. And then the MPAA said, no, no. Yeah, but I mean, the, the spear through the two kids was effective the way it was cut. But I only, only can imagine how what, what the original footage looked like that had to get cut. I can only imagine. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the funny thing is, uh, we're talking about the, the graphicness of this. I still feel like if you watched, you know, television, primetime television today, you would see something more graphic 
than anything we're seeing in this movie. Yes. Um, we, we some really yes and some no. So TV, far away. TV f- f- fears blood. But it is nothing compared to, you know, films even later in the 80s. I remember watching Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street, and you see a little blood, and you see a knife in someone. And then I saw Hellraiser, where people's skin was ripped off their body and extended to its limits. Hellraiser's what I almost vomited the first time I saw Hellraiser. And no, this is nothing compared to that. Don't even get me started on the MPAA, though. Don't even get me started there. Yeah, they definitely have a inconsistent and and have and have a history of being uh, more uh, judgmental towards independent and smaller budget movies. Let, let's face so, facts in the in this day and age, this entire Friday the Thirteenth Part Two would be PG thirteen, except for the skinny dipping scene, because God knows the MPAA fears breasts. Yes, they would have a bigger problem with the uh, aerobics queen going out there in the lake than they would with how she's killed. I love that scene. That was a great scene. Not just because she got nude, I'm not a horn dog, but I thought it was really cool. I thought it was really well done and really fun. And the misdirection there with the kid stealing her clothes, you know, you could have thought that was Jason, but actually it was the horn dog kid. So I thought that was a fun little scene. In in our discussions of the first two Friday the 13th, we don't talk a whole lot about the victims. And primarily because they're all generic white kids getting killed, except for the one in the wheelchair. But I have to ask, the guy who stole the aerobics queen's clothes, what was up with him? There was like a vibe about him. I couldn't figure out. It's like his Happy. eyes were glazed and his hair was suave. But he, he kept trying to get with that aerobics queen who wanted none of it. I mean, I, I he was kind of stalkerific. Don't you remember your 80s cliches? He's preppy. He had the popped collar of like an eyes up. Oh, I loved the up collar. That was so retro. I was busted. He's Rob Lowe. He's James Spader. Exactly. He was the definition of the cool kid. Exactly. Oh, he was cool. I I honestly thought there was something off about him and I was getting the creepy vibe. Well, that's the fate of anyone cool is one decade you're cool and the next you are are that thing. I agree. I think I, I I totally think in James Spader, Rob Lowe, right there the whole time, and I'm like, I hope he gets it. He deserves it. What a jerk. <laughs> How do we feel about Muffin? <laughs> Muffin the dog. <laughs> it is. Uh, it, speaking of misdirection, we're led to believe that Jason takes a little Shitu and mauls him to bits. And uh, and then in the climax, we're uh, relieved to find out that, in fact, Muffin lived and that that was some other fluffy white thing that was butchered in the woods. You know, it goes back. You don't kill kids. You don't kill dogs. Yeah. But you don't kill people in wheelchairs. That, that's like, true. I don't know. Would would uh, would we have a different opinion about Jason if he had killed a Shitu? It's kind of wimpy. I mean, it is a Shitu. It's not even like a Doberman. I mean, the thing they find in the woods with the teeth and the markings, it looks just like that dog. So do we walk out of the theater going, oh, Jason wasn't so bad. He didn't kill the dog. (laughs) (laughs) Or was that test screen and they're like, we can't have him kill the dog. He can kill everyone else on screen, but we can't have him kill Muffin and stuck a shot of Muffin in the end. Funny is when you asked what I thought of Muffin, I thought there was just some girl in too tight jeans. (laughs) I thought you were talking about that was Muffin's owner. (laughs) There were some tight pants going around there, weren't there? There definitely were. were Short short shorts. Yes, short shorts. And an aversion to wearing t-shirts, I also thought was interesting. And an aversion to bras. There were some nipping scenes like you wouldn't believe. The opening scene with the girl with the mazy, crazy, curly hair and the and her boyfriend guy who with the payphone. 
the whole time I'm looking at her like, she's not wearing a bra. And the whole movie, she's not wearing a bra. And she's like, you know, she's loaded in there. And you'd think she'd actually have to wear a bra for support. Although nope, not her. her boyfriend has one hell of a nice truck for a camp counselor. <laughs> what the hell? That's a nice pickup. So this movie actually did have some of those cliche moments that we all know about. I'll be right back. And then they, someone says that and they get killed. And they have, you know, the teenagers who screw around or do drugs. They get killed. But then again, as we're talking about now, they actually go against the conventions that we think this sort of series perpetuates. It's kind of interesting to come back now, all these years later, and I guess you could say see the birth of the cliches or some of them. And it's kind of fun in that sense, like to see them for the first time, quote unquote, but actually how they began. It's kind of neat. I don't really think, though, the cliche was as violated in this movie as the last one. Here, everyone who dies engages in sexual behavior. There are eight deaths, with the exception of creepy Ralph, who was being a pervert peeping Tom, and the girl from the flashback who was who killed Jason's mother. So you take those two out of it, the remaining deaths were all sexual people. How did the girl, the girl who was skinny dipping, the aerobics girl, uh-huh. she didn't, she was pushing the advances away. She was she skinny was, dipping. No, but she was taunting it. She was asking for it. <laughs> <laughs> she was so hot that she deserved to die. Clearly this movie was made by straight men. Well, she was skinny <laughs> dipping. I mean, there was that. And then the Rob Lowe guy was the lech watching her. The two impaled together were having sex. The cripple was about to go down on the girl in the black panties. Hence why the perfume was shot down her pants. Which, by the way, I shall add, the first time I saw this movie was the first time I'd ever seen a woman perfume her pants. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's for the bears. It's for the bears. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh, man. She was just following the rules. All right. So I think we've pretty much expended the conversation on this. Would you agree? I would agree. I think we talked more about the movie than the movie is long. So, yeah. Okay. So I guess we should go around and say, given everything we just talked about, would you recommend Friday the 13th Part 2 to anybody? Arnie. Again, you know what you're in for. I think this one held up better than my memory gave it credit for. I I think it was on par with the first one, although it doesn't have the cool twist ending of who the killer is. Uh, I, I'd say, yeah, if, if you like this kind of movie, then you'll like this one. I would recommend Psycho 2 over this. <laughs> no, liar! Liar! When is the last time you've seen Psycho 2? Uh, 1980-whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, watch it again. Yeah. You would recommend this over Psycho 2 based on our conversation. I, I would never, ever in my life pop in Psycho 2 or 3 into a VCR, DVD player, or Blu-ray player, ever. I, would, I, I just cannot imagine Psycho 2 or 3 as anything. Uh, of course, then before I watch this movie with you guys for this series we're doing, I would never say I would pop in Friday the 13th Part 2 either. So maybe if we do a series on Psycho one day, I'll have to eat my words. I actually like this more than I thought I was going to because of all the reasons I said earlier, how actually it worked pretty well in certain aspects. But I can see that it's not as suspenseful and not as clever as the first one. I think we're going to start seeing a downward trend, but, you know, I think we all know that, don't we? So I want to thank you both for uh, joining me on this conversation. It was, it was fun. Definitely. And we will be back for part three. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I can't wait. In 3D. Really? In 3D? For real? You, I thought that was a joke. No, no it's, it's really a 3D movie. Oh, cool. Well, cool. Well, thanks very much, everyone. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to our Friday the 13th Retrospective. 
we will be reviewing two Friday the 13th episodes each week up to the release of the new movie in February. Come back to nowplayingpodcast.com to get the latest episodes. If you did, if you did, if you did, if you did. Now Playing is a production of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved.